Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Zechariah chapter 10, we're continuing our study through there. And uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are basically one word of the Lord. Uh, we've only done one chapter at a time, but it's basically one complete word of the Lord. When we get to chapter 12, it's a, it's a new word of the Lord for, uh, for Zechariah. So at chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For for the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. See, the Lord is waiting to bless his people, but he wants them to ask him and not to rely on their idols or on the false prophets. When he says here, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain, he's literally talking about actual rain. Um, In Zechariah's day and through much of Israel's history, the former rain, what that's referring to, is actually in August when it was seed time, and the rains there were needed to germinate the crop, to germinate the seeds that were in the ground. The latter rain, so so they had this former rain, then they had a period of no rain, because it's a very arid area, and then they'd have a latter rain in the spring just before harvest, and again, it was needed to ripen the, the crops before they harvested. And in the Bible, the literal rainfall in Israel was connected to the people's obedience to the Lord. Back in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, Moses tells the children of Israel this, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So this is a literal thing. If the children of Israel were obedient, they'd have rainfall in due season. Then the land would be flowing with milk and honey as they describe uh, the promised land. However, if they were disobedient, God would stop the rainfall and the land would become like a desert. Now, every time after Israel went into captivity, the land became a desert. And for 2,000 years, the land was, I mean, it was, it was just, a, you know, it was very dry and arid and stuff. And then, and then uh, you know, the, the nation state of Israel was born. And, and they've actually been irrigating. And they've been doing all kinds of things. And the rainfall has actually increased in that land. Uh, they've really transformed the land through, irrig- through irrigation. Um, however, that is not a fulfillment of this prophecy. The, the irrigation and the things that Israel as a nation has done there. Why? Because it's still only partial. If you go to Israel, it's still very, very dry around there, and it's still very heavily dependent on its rainy seasons. And not only that, but during the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble that the Bible talks about, there's, an ama- there's a lot of verses that talk about what it's going to be like. I'm going to just point out a few. In Revelation 6.6, 6, 
It's, there's going to be inflationary prices for grain. It's going to take a day's wage to buy a bag of, you know, to have a loaf of bread, basically. It's going to be insane. Um, in Revelation 6, 8, there's going to be worldwide hunger, obviously resulting from famine. Uh, in Revelation 8, verse 7, a third of the grass and the trees of the earth are going to be burned up. In Revelation 8, verse 10, a third of the world's springs and rivers will become bitter. In other words, they'll be undrinkable. In Revelation eleven six, the two witnesses that will come down and they'll be preaching there in Jerusalem, the Lord's two witnesses have power to stop the rain over the entire earth during the time of their ministry on the earth. And then Revelation sixteen twelve tells us that the great Euphrates River is going to dry up. So needless to say, there's going to be drought during the Great Tribulation. There's going to be, it's going to be dry. It's going to be hard, uh, hardship for the people. And so this prophecy here in Zechariah 10, it's a literal prophecy, I believe, and it's directed to the Jewish remnant who are alive during the Great Tribulation. It's, it's for them to ask the Lord for the latter rain. And that'll be after the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus ushers in the kingdom age. We call it the millennium. It's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. The earth is going to be completely transformed and renewed. And I think that's what this is speaking to. Well, one of the first things that we can apply maybe to our own lives this morning looking at this, this verse, basically, is to ask the Lord. That's the first thing. Just ask the Lord for rain. You know, we're to ask the Lord. We're to seek his blessing. James 4.4 4 says, you do not have because you don't ask. It's a lesson that I've had to learn is just, just asking the Lord for things. You know, for those of us that have been parents, I'm a grandparent now, but, but I remember back as parents, man, you know, we stand by ready to bless our children. We want to bless our children, but we also don't want them to presume. We don't want them to assume things. We want them to ask us. We want them to actually come to us and say, can I have that, or, or can you do this, or whatever. Because we want to bless them, but we also want them to ask us. We don't want them to just assume that we'll do everything you know, without them asking. And I think the Lord is like that, too. He wants us to ask him. Um, this was really brought home to me with the whole purchasing this community clothesline building. I mean, you know, just from the, from the moment of, of just walking by there one day and seeing the for sale sign and going, Lord, this would be a beautiful place for our church. Can we have this church? And from there, I just kept, every time I drive by there, pull into the parking lot, Lord, can we have this building? And look where we're at now. The Lord's been answering that prayer. Of course, that asking implies that you're praying, right? So that's another reminder. I mean, well, how's our prayer life? Are we spending time asking the Lord? Are we seeking him? You know, in Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a parable of the persistent widow She's got some issues. She goes to this judge, this unjust judge, and and the and in Luke's Bible, in Luke's, Luke's not Luke's Bible, but in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow in order to, as as Luke says, that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. And if you remember that parable, the unjust judge basically he says, "Man, I don't fear God, and I don't respect people." But man, this woman, she just keeps, she's hounding me. She's, and of course, I'm heavily paraphrasing. But basically saying, you know, she just keeps bugging me. So I'm going to go ahead and grant her request. 
And the lesson in there is not that we have an unjust judge and we go bug the Lord, you know, all the time. No, but the the point is, if an unjust judge is going to answer the persistent widow's requests, how much more will the just judge answer your and my prayers when we come and seek him? How much more? Because he loves us. He's standing ready to bless us. But the Lord wants his people to look to him for blessings and not to idols. And that's why he says, For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. And when you think of idols, you think of, you know, when we went to Israel one time, it was, you know, sometimes I had this picture of idols, like, and I think of this Buddha, you know, this like three-foot statue type of thing. And we went to a museum there in uh, in Megiddo, I think it was, Tel Megiddo, and uh, they had uncovered some idols that uh, the Canaanites had worshipped. These things were like this big, these little, just these little tiny, that was their idols. I'm like, that's amazing, because I always thought it was some big thing, you know, and they're actually, and they may have had some big ones, but generally there were these little ones, and, uh, you know, we go, ha, nobody's worshipping these little idols nowadays. Well, you know what? People haven't changed, right? I mean, we're still idolaters. People, the, our culture, our, uh, our generation are in, steeped in idolatry. The whole world is caught up in pursuing idols and also heeding man's doctrines, the false, the, the speakers of delusion. Uh, and we know that it's just going to continue to grow worse. In fact, Paul writes in Second Thessalonians 2, he talks about it in, in chapter 1, Uh, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness." So, so we know that there's going to be more idolatry. There's going to be more deception. It's going to grow. It's going to get worse. In uh, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what the, the days will be like during the Great Tribulation. And the world at that time will be under such a strong delusion. In Matthew 24, 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, the elect that he's speaking about there is speaking of Israel. The Antichrist, 
and the false prophet, well, the Antichrist, he's going to be viewed by Israel as the Messiah because they are waiting for the Messiah to come to build their temple. And, it, and somehow the, the Antichrist is going to work out a treaty or is going to work out something. He may be, even be the one involved in building the temple. And they're going to look at that and they're going to go, Here's, he's the Messiah. Well, the Lord says your idols speak delusion. It's talking like emptiness, vanity. It's used to signify empty or false or futile pursuits. How many people are pursuing, you know, futile things, things that don't profit us? People are delusional when they try to find happiness and fulfillment in empty pursuits. Uh, you know, get this new car and then I'm going to feel, man, my life's going to be complete. You know, marketing, they tell you that, right? Uh, you're missing out because you don't have this product that we're trying to sell you. Your life is miserable, but look at us. And they always have people smiling. If you get into that, you'll be fine, you know? And so you do that, right? You, you buy into the lie. You, you, you follow after that. And then you get there and you go, man, nothing's changed. Except now I got a payment I got to worry about, <laughs> you know? You know, even born-again Christians can get caught up and focused on what the Bible describes as the wood, the hay, and the stubble of our lives. Those things are going to burn away. Eventually, they're going to burn. And we can get caught up in that eventually ourselves if we're not careful. He talks about the diviners who envision lies and tell false dreams. What he's speaking about is basically preachers of false doctrine. It's the world's doctrines which are false, so they're not God's. He says they comfort in vain. Uh, It literally means they give vapor for comfort. In other words, false comfort. Um, Look at how many people are living their lives right now in false comfort. We've got people who are uh, Islamic jihadists, right? They believe if they die a martyr's death, man, they're they're guaranteed paradise. That's false. It's a lie from the pit of hell. There's a lot of other people that believe that as long as I live a good life, you know, as long as I'm moral, I'm better than the next guy, man, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. That, that's a falsehood too. That's a false comfort. There's other people that believe, well, as long as I've been baptized as an infant, you know, as long as I've been confirmed, now I can live my life as, as however I please. And, and I've got that little, you know, get into heaven free card. And, and so I've, I've got my fire insurance, basically, right? I'm not going to go to hell. So uh, that's, that's, again, false comfort. Others believe, you know, if they do good works, God's going to accept them into heaven. I mean, the list of false comfort goes on and on and on. And people are being sold a bill of, a bill of goods that's completely false. The second thing that we can take from this, if you and I want God's blessings... We need to turn away from idols. You want God's blessings in your life, be obedient to the word of God. That's what he's saying. I want to bless you, but, but you know, ask me. Don't turn to these false things. Don't turn to these idols. So Israel, they had the former rain in the due season, in due season to germinate the seed. And like I said, then there'd be this very dry, arid season, and it was critical for the ripening of the fruit that there'd be the latter rain. So the, they had this, this, this blessing in the beginning, then they had this dry spell, and then they, I mean, if they didn't get that latter rain, their crop would be basically just, it wouldn't be a bumper crop, it'd be pretty miserable. Well, just as the crops could not rely solely on the former rains to reap a harvest, so too, you and I, we cannot rely on our past experiences with Christ. I know believers are like, you know, yeah, man, back when I first got saved, man, God was doing such a great thing, man. He was revealing himself to us. He was blessing me and stuff. And, and, and finally, you know, sometimes people get into this dry spell. 
and, and nothing seems to be happening. Well, we desperately need the latter rain of God's blessings to ripen that spiritual fruit in us. We need it. So ask the Lord. I like what uh, this one commentator said, uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown. He says, though God has begun to bless us, we are not to relax our prayers. The former reign of conversion may have been given, but we must also ask for the latter reign of ripened sanctification. Though at Pentecost there was a former reign on the Jewish church, a latter reign is still to be looked for when the full harvest of the nation's conversion shall be gathered into God. The spirit of prayer in the church is an index at once of her piety and of the spiritual blessing she may expect from God. When the church is full of prayer, God pours out a full blessing. Again, I mean, that's why we're I'm doing this prayer thing at the community clothesline parking lot. Yeah, you know, the Lord's answered our prayer. It looks like, I mean, we're, out, we're just a couple signatures away from having a, a negotiation, a deal. I mean, that's, that's great. And it seems like the Lord's answered our prayer, but you know what? Now is not a time to let up praying. We've got to keep praying. We've got to keep seeking the Lord. There's all kinds of other issues that we still, the Lord wants us to seek Him in. And so, again, we need to be seeking Him. Well, continuing on here in verse 2, it says, Therefore the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. Part of the problem with these false teachers, it, 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 it left a vacuum there for the children of Israel. They're in trouble because there's no shepherd. Remember when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, and in Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Man, that describes, I think, a lot of people today. They're just wandering through life. There's no shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And you and I, we have the good shepherd. We have the, we, have, we have the message of hope. We have the answer to life. It's right there in front of you in your Bibles there and in our own testimonies. Well, there are a lot of people who have been deceived by false shepherds. And so verse 3, it says, My anger is kindled, kindled excuse me, against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. You know, shepherds, by definition, they take care of sheep. I mean, that's, that's their job description. They take care of sheep. They're supposed to care for them. They're supposed to protect their sheep. They're supposed to lead their sheep, lead the flocks to places where they can graze so that they can be fed. But these false shepherds here are called goat herds. Now a goat herd, it refers to a male goat, a strong male leader. And you know, if you think about the false teachers, you know, people that lead cults and stuff, uh, usually they're very strong personalities. They're very dynamic. They're people that, they're, they're leaders and people tend to follow. People want to follow somebody and so they follow them. But instead of caring for and protecting and leading them to a place of feeding, these false shepherds, they basically were feeding their own appetites off of the sheep, basically. And they were leading the people astray and abandoning them, abandoning them and leaving them defenseless. God cares about his sheep. God cares about people. And so God's going to punish these goat herds. Well, who are the goat herds? Well, you know, their names have been sprinkled throughout history, uh, throughout the pages of ancient Israel's history. The church 
has been and will continue to be plagued with false shepherds and goat herds. They're around today. The ultimate goat herd, of course, will be the Antichrist and the false prophet during the tribulation. <coughs> it says, For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. From him comes the cornerstone. So after Israel has been left wandering for lack of a true shepherd, God's going to visit his flock, Judah. He's going to transform them from a flock of sheep to a herd of war horses ready for battle. <clears throat> says, from the tribe of Judah comes the cornerstone. That's definitely a messianic uh, verse there. The cornerstone. It's basically the stone that's it's, it's set there in place and, and everything's measured and everything's, that, that's, that's the foundation. That's the base of the foundation. It's the standard of measure. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 28.16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried, uh, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. He's that firm foundation. <clears throat> Paul in Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you, know, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We have to ask ourselves, is Jesus the foundation of our lives? Is Jesus the standard of measurement for us? He says, from Judah comes the tent peg. What's the tent peg? Well, it's a wooden peg or it could be a nail. And the illusion, uh, what it's alluding to is either a tent peg that all the cords of the tent are tied to and connected. It basically holds the tent together or it could also be speaking about a peg that's driven into a wall and for hanging things onto. In, I, in Isaiah 22, there's this prophecy regarding Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And it alludes to that. It says in Isaiah 22:23, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the prosperity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. So in other words, you have this tent, this peg in this wall. Everything's hung on this peg. All of us, you know, the Bible, we're vessels, right? That's the, Paul talks about us, that we're just, we're just earthen vessels. We're jars. We're just, we're nothing. But all of us, we hang on Jesus Christ. In other words, we all of our, you know, our fellowship together, our standing in the body of Christ, even our strength, everything about us is based on Christ's strength and his faithfulness. That's what this is speaking about. Out of Judah comes the battle bow. Um, and I think what this is speaking about, let me read to you Revelation 19.11. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. You know, in reality, the battle is always the Lord's. It's never ours. We just, like in this case, we just get to ride out uh, from heaven behind him. He's the battle bow. So we have to ask ourselves, is the Lord fighting our battles? Or are we trying to do our own thing? Are we trying to fight our own battles? It says, from Judah, every ruler together. That's kind of a, kind of a little bit more difficult to interpret. But I think Revelation 19 verse 15 explains it. Because it continues what I was just reading earlier. and says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I think that's what this is speaking about. Jesus is the leader of all his people. He's the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. You know, the Bible, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And a lot of times pastors like to think they're the shepherd. Well, no, they're the under-shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Verse 5, They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. You know, you and I were only victorious of our enemies because the Lord is with us. A word with, it's a preposition. It means with, of course, but it also means for, and it means toward. The Lord is for us, right? Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't it good to know that God is for you? The Lord is also with us. In Hebrews 13.5, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Man, the Lord's with us. And God's love is manifested toward us. 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. You and I are so blessed as believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them back, because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. So now he's speaking of the house of Judah. We know that that was, you know, there was the kingdom of Judah, which was Judah and Benjamin. Uh, He's speaking about the house of Joseph and Ephraim. Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons. Ephraim was also the term used for the ten northern tribes. So when you take these all together, the house of Judah, the house of Joseph, and Ephraim, what he's really speaking about is these guys are representative of all the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, God is going to have mercy on the entire nation of Israel during the Great Tribulation. The end of that time shall be marked by joy. Why? 
when they recognize that Jesus is their Messiah, and as he sets up his kingdom on earth, their joy is going to be complete. You know, you and I, we already know Jesus is the Messiah, right? We already know that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the dead. We already know that, you know, uh, when, when our loved ones pass away, you know, we don't, we don't grieve as if we have no hope, but, but we have that hope of eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, we're, we're so blessed. This is something that should mark your and my life right now, and that's joy. We as believers should be the most joyful people on the planet. We already have a relationship with Jesus. We already know that he's the Messiah. We know how much he's done for us, and he continues to do, and we trust that he's going to continue because the Lord God is faithful. Our lives should be marked by rejoicing in his salvation. You know, the things that we go through in this life, I mean, we go through some difficult things. We go through hardships. We have have disappointments and stuff, but you know what? We as believers should always be balanced in light of our eternal salvation. Always put it into perspective, man. You have eternal life. You're not, you're not going to perish. You have eternal life. The result, man, that should be joy. And you know what? Joy is contagious. It really is. When you're a joyful person, man, people around you, they just, it, just it, it, it rubs off on people. But you know the opposite is also true. If you're not joyful, if you're miserable, if you're always grumbling, if you're complaining, you know that that's contagious too. Remember when the spies, the 12 spies, were sent out from from the children of Israel to go check out the promised land? Two of them were really encouraging. They were joyful. Hey, yeah, yeah, sure, there's some giants there, but man, God's promised us this land. Let's go for it. I mean, they were just full of joy, excited. Let's let's do it now, man. I'm ready. But there were 10 others that were like Eeyore, you know, oh, I don't know, you know, and they they were basically, they were were grumblers and complainers. It's never going to work. And, and, Ten people, man, they, they actually, their misery was contagious to the point that about two and a half million Israelites gave up. Joy is contagious, but also is misery. And for you and I as believers, man, we should be, we should be contagiously joyful. So others just, you know, it's, we always have an opportunity to share. Even going through a difficult time, you know, people go, you know, how can you, how can you maintain, you know, your, your composure? How can you still be happy? Well, we're not always happy, but we're always joyful. And we have an opportunity to share, well, it's because I have a relationship with Jesus, man. I'm going to heaven. This is just temporary. Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. Increased. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart." What this is speaking about, the miraculous regathering of the nation of Israel, uh, you know, in our generations, you think about when Israel became a nation state, it was an amazing thing. It was a miraculous thing. If you've ever studied the history of, of the modern state of Israel and, and the battles that they fought, I mean, here's this little, little tiny nation, and, and there's these Holocaust survivors, and there's, they, they don't have guns, they don't have aircraft, they, they don't have much of anything. 
And there's these Arab armies all around them that want to wipe them off the face of the earth, basically. Wipe them into the sea, you know. And, and, and the Lord miraculously delivered them. It's a miracle when you read about that. It's nothing short of a miracle. But that is just a foretaste of how the Lord is going to ultimately deliver his people, the Jews, during the time of Jacob's trouble, during the Great Tribulation. Notice he says, I'll bring them, I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt. And he says, he will pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea and all the depths of the river shall dry up. It should sound familiar to us. It's like, wait, that sounds like the Exodus. That sounds like what God did when he led the children of Israel. You know, they, they crossed through the Red Sea and, and, and God was miraculously bringing them out of Egypt. Well, the thing is, God's ultimate deliverance of the children of Israel during the Great Tribulation, it's going to be even more miraculous, even more spectacular than what he did with the first Exodus. But, you know, you and I, we're going to have to hear about it later. <laughs> we won't be here to witness it because... The church is going to be in heaven with Jesus at that time. We're going to be feasting at that time. We're going to be fellowshipping. We're going to be worshiping. And there's one other thing I'm personally going to have to do, and that's I'm going to have to take horse riding lessons because I have to be prepared to get on that horse to ride with, follow Jesus down, and I, I'm not experienced. So I'll be, I'll be the one guy taking lessons up in heaven on riding horses. Some of you already know how to do that, but... But seriously, the church is going to be raptured in that time, and it's the time, the Bible says, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time when God is going to be working once more with the nation, his chosen people, so that, as it says in Romans 11, all Israel will be, will be saved during that day. God has not given up on his people. Verse 12, So I will strengthen them in the Lord. They shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. They're going to be strengthened in the Lord. All Everything that they're going to be doing, they're going to be doing in his name. See, you and I, we're strengthened by the Lord. It's the same thing It's true for you and I. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So I just want to encourage you this morning. Uh, hopefully, you know, as we look through this passage and we look at the prophecies regarding Israel, uh, I, you know, I, I see application for each one of us today. And I think the, probably the biggest thing is joy. We should be filled with joy because all the things that the Lord's done for us. Um, why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to go ahead and, and have communion this morning. We'll pick up chapter 11 next week. That's when the Lord God's speaking to the false shepherds. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be looking at that next week. Why don't we just ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you have made to Israel, Lord. We've seen how you've been faithful to them in the past, Lord, even in our own lives, Lord. We've seen how you've been faithful in our own lives. Lord, I thank you that we can trust you for the future, Lord, that you are a faithful God. And Lord, as we uh, just read about this, I pray, Lord, that our hearts might be encouraged as well. Lord God, that we might be encouraged to seek you, to ask you, uh, Lord, to be in prayer, Lord. I pray if our, if our prayer lives, Lord, if Today, if we were to be asked, how's your prayer life? And if our answer would be kind of, well, it's not really that good. Father, I pray that today we might be encouraged to seek you, encouraged to spend time in your presence, to thank you for the things that you've blessed us with. Lord, to ask you for the things that we need 
and to trust you and your love for us. And so I just thank you for those reminders this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing on each person here, each person, all the people that aren't here today that are, I know they're in vacation or visiting family, whatever. Lord, we ask that you'd watch over them. And uh, we just thank you for this fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen.